Well, let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, as we continue on. We're going to read uh, just one verse, the 12th verse. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. God, our Father, we praise you this morning again. We thank you again. There's there's no one else that we would sing a song like that about. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. You're my righteousness. And we love you. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and for the privilege of being here with your people who know you and who love you and for the privilege, Lord, of having your word. And so we ask, Father, as we now think about the words of the Lord Jesus and what he said 2,000 years ago in all of their enduring relevancy. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand and teach us and instruct us and guide us. Give us wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of him, we pray. And help us by your Holy Spirit. And do what we could never do ourselves, Lord. Reveal to us afresh your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in total darkness? I mean, when it's really dark. So much so that when you put your hand in front of your face, you can't even see your hand. Have you ever been in darkness like that? Several years ago, around when I first came to Utah, Alan Taylor took me to the Minnetonka Cave um, near Bear Lake. And if you've been there, then you know it's about a half a mile into the heart of the earth. And there's all these twists and turns, and you're on this winding path, and it's lit by electric light. And there's all these beautiful uh, pillars and things, and, and you descend down staircases. And when you get to the very end of the cave, they turn off the lights. And they leave you in the dark for a little while. And it's cold, and it's dark. And I tried it. I put my hand in front of my face. I kind of waved it. And I could not see my hand. And there's a weird sensation uh, when you're in the dark like that, that total darkness. You can almost feel the darkness, right? In the book of Exodus, God sends darkness upon Egypt. And he himself says that, I'm going to send a darkness upon Egypt so dark that you can feel it. That's what God said. And so there's kind of that sensation in the darkness that's so thick, it's so palpable, um, you can feel it. And at first it's fun, you know, whoa, I'm in the dark, I can't see my hand, this is cool. But it's kind of unsettling after a while because you start thinking, if the lights don't come back on, you know, then I'm in a pretty bad situation, <laughs> right? We're in trouble. Uh, there'd be no way of getting out of that cave without seriously endangering yourself. So when the lights do come back on, you feel a sense of relief. Whew. The lights are back on, I can see. This morning, we come now to a very important theme in the Gospel of John. 
and in all of John's writings, and in fact, a very important theme in the whole Bible, and that is the theme of walking in darkness and walking in light. But the light and the darkness that we're talking about here in the Bible and what Jesus is referring to here in this verse is not physical light and physical darkness, but he's speaking of light and darkness in a metaphorical way. Now, the metaphor, of course, is borrowed from the physical, and rightly so. When God created the world, what is the first act of creation that is recorded in the book of Genesis, chapter 1? Let there be light. That was the very first act of creation. Let there be light. Not let there be the sun, not let there be the moon and the stars. Those are mere apparatuses of light, we realize in the first chapter of Genesis. But God creates physical light itself. Whatever that means, he did it. And he divided the light from the darkness and he called that good. Now everything God created has a purpose, amen? Is it just purposeless? Do you think that he created light first and divided it from the darkness? No. It's there for a purpose and it's there to teach us something about his nature. And we learn from Genesis chapter 1 that there's something fundamental about the concept of light. Amen? There's something about light and darkness and God creating light in the darkness that's fundamental to God's own nature and being. And that is something that's unpacked and unfolded as we go on in the Bible. We realize that. So it's no surprise then that in John, and I I say this a lot, but John writes about the highest and the sublimest realities of theology. It's therefore no surprise that John should draw so heavily upon this concept of light. We see in the prologue of the Gospel of John that when John is saying that Jesus the Word came into the world, he says that Jesus came into the world as light in darkness, to bring light in darkness, and even makes the point of saying, John was a lamp, but he was not the light. He was testifying of the light. Jesus was the real light that comes into the world and gives light to this world. So right away in the prologue, which contains really the essence of the whole gospel, you have light, Jesus as light. And of course, if you remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, when John again repeats that Jesus came into the world and we have seen and we have touched and we have heard and we have handled the word of life, he says, this is the message that we have received from him and now we declare it unto you. So he kind of summarizes it all in one statement. This is basically the essence of what we have re- received from Jesus. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Wow. So John captures it all in that saying. In other words, when John is looking for words to explain the core message of the gospel and to explain the nature of God that's revealed in Jesus, he refers to physical light and physical darkness. He uses that as a metaphor. He finds these words to be the best and the most apparent concepts for illuminating what he's trying to say. What he's trying to say. So this morning we're going to look at verse 12. In fact, it's really not John who originally takes these words, light and darkness, and applies them to the message of Christ and to God, but it's Jesus himself. So we're going to look at verse 12, and I'm going to uh, just 
exegete this passage this morning and we'll divide the verse into the three natural sections that um, most naturally present itself to us this morning in the verse. Number one, we'll look at Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. What does he mean by saying he is the light of the world? And second, secondly, we'll ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus so that we don't walk in darkness? What does that mean? And then lastly, what does it mean to have the light of life? Those are the three basic statements that Jesus makes here. So we'll just look at those three in order. So first of all, what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Now notice that the verse starts, you see this, brothers and sisters, then Jesus again spoke to them. So these words tell us very clearly that we're jumping into the middle of something. And so I'd like us to just take a moment and locate this verse in the Gospel of John and catch us up to where we are. So here's my summary of basically the Gospel of John and where we are. You ready? It's a treat. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the incarnate Word of God, lived in basic obscurity in Galilee for roughly 30 years until he publicly introduced himself in Jerusalem to Israel by cleansing the temple about 30 AD on the Passover in that year. At that time, when he cleansed the temple, he had a handful of followers. His coming and his identity was heralded by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed to that man who was a builder from Nazareth, and he said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he had people that left John and started to follow him. But through his miracles that he performed, he quickly gathered an enormous following, actually larger than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was hugely popular. And suddenly all that popularity shifted from John to Jesus because of these wonderful miracles. Crowds from Israel were following him. Even some leaders were interested in him and following him, like Nicodemus. And here was a shock. Many Samaritans were also following Jesus as well. And Jesus was open to receiving the Samaritans into his uh, fold. Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders was rocky from the start due to his disregard for the prevailing orthodoxy in his day. Right? So they had this prevailing orthodoxy, they had this hegemony, they had this rule that was unquestioned, and Jesus is disregarding it. Jesus preached with unique authority a standard of righteousness that dared to suggest that nobody was righteous, right? (laughs) So he preached with authority a standard of righteousness different than the the prevailing orthodoxy of his day. Not even the Pharisees Jesus considered to be righteous, and that was a shock. Jesus dared to take upon himself the prerogatives of forgiving sins. This is another thing that was unorthodox. So he'd say, your sins are forgiven without requiring any penance. And this was unorthodox in the The leaders of Israel were upset by this as well. How can this man forgive sins? Furthermore, Jesus would do miracles and healings on the Sabbath. 
And all of this culminated in his claim of equality with God. At that point, his relation with the leaders of Israel was finished, if there was any good relation whatsoever. And, it, and the Gospel of John tells us that from that point, they began to seek to kill Jesus. When they, when they realized he was claiming equality with God, they didn't like him already, but that was the last straw. But many crowds still followed Jesus. They were impressed by his miracles. All of this changed in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. We looked at this several weeks ago. After Jesus' most impressive miracle. So it's interesting. The crowds are following Jesus because they're impressed by his miracles. And yet he loses the crowds right after his most impressive miracle. Why is that? Because after feeding the multitudes with bread, then Jesus proceeded to give his first I am statement. I am the bread of life. And he began to teach the spiritual significance of that bread miracle, that he himself is the bread of God who came down from heaven to give life to the world. And if you don't eat him, you have no life in you. There is no other way to have life or eternal life than to believe upon him. And by believing in his blood and his flesh, that's the only way to have eternal life. But by this, they walked away from him. Many people stopped following Jesus at that point. In the last chapter, chapter 7, we saw confusion prevailing at the Feast of Tabernacles, where the crowds now are in confusion. Are the leaders right? Are the leaders wrong? What do the leaders really think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he he the Messiah? He does all these impressive miracles, but what about his credentials? Ah, I think he's a great teacher from God. No, I think he's leading people astray, and there's all this confusion. Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles, into the midst of that confusion, And as we saw in chapter 7, he gave us the simple and definitive way of knowing whether his doctrine was true or not. How do you know whether Jesus' doctrine is the truth? According to Jesus, he tells us in John chapter 7, you know that his doctrine is true because it gives glory to God and takes away glory from men, and you know that's the way it should be. If you're honest... It takes away glory from man. And you know that's the way it should be. So it's in this context, in the Feast of Tabernacles, in the midst of this confusion, that we come to verse 12 in chapter 8, the reading that we did this morning. We're still in the Feast of Tabernacles. The story of the woman who was caught in adultery is not actually in the Gospel of John. So just mentally, as you look at your page Uh, omit the story of the woman caught in adultery, and verse 12, just the the narrative just flows on from chapter 7 into verse 12. And actually, turn back with me to chapter 7, verse 37, please. And in verse 37, we see Jesus here on the last day, the great day of the feast. He stands up and cries out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. From verse 39 to 52, we really just have a picture of what people are thinking about when they hear Jesus say this. So they're hearing him make this public pronouncement, and we get kind of a behind-the-scenes look at how do they respond to this. 
But I'd like us to connect verse 37 and 38 with verse 12, because in verse 12 we say, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, so we just had one proclamation that if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And then Jesus again says, I am the light of the world. So we have two extraordinary claims from Jesus. Back to back. Do you remember how I mentioned when we were in chapter 7 that at the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a water ritual every day of the feast? And how the priests would come and they'd bring water and they'd pour the water out on the altar? And do you remember what that water signified during the Feast of Tabernacles? It was a remembrance of how God fed the people in the wilderness uh, water, miraculously, how he provided for them. He, He took care of their needs while they were in the wilderness before he brought them to the land. So it was a remembrance of God's provision for them. And it was also a ritual that pointed to the future provision that God would provide. The prophet said God would also provide water for the people and blessing. And so as they poured out the water, they would remember the past provision of God, the present provision of God, and his future provision for them. Now the commentaries that I've read all say that the there was another ritual that took place in the Feast of Tabernacles. It wasn't just the water ritual that they did. Have you heard of this other ritual that they did? So every night, that was during the day they'd pour out the water, but every night the priests would light these four massive candlesticks in the temple courts. Apparently they had these huge candlesticks that a person had to climb up on a ladder to get to the top of. And the bowls of these candles contained, I think, 16 gallons of oil, each one. And they... they climb up on a ladder and light these candlesticks, four of them. And apparently, according to the people that wrote about it and that was there in those times, because we have a record of this, it just shed light all over Jerusalem. Jerusalem just lit up by these torches, these huge candlesticks. And what do you think that symbolized in the Feast of Tabernacles? If the water symbolized God's provision for Israel in the wilderness then what did this light symbolize for the people of Israel? Well, of course, it symbolized God's, that pillar of fire that went before Israel in the darkness and that rested upon the tabernacle. So it was God's presence. It was God, his presence giving light to the people and guiding them. And so it's against this backdrop also that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So he's saying, you know how you're remembering God's provision of water? Well, if you really are looking for the real water, it's found in me. And you know how you're remembering how God gave you light in the wilderness and also how the prophets predict that light is also coming? So you're remembering God's past provision of light and you're looking forward to the future? Well, it's here in me. I am that light. I am the light of the world. You need not look any further. In fact, if you miss me, then you've completely missed it altogether. So this is the context of verse 12 at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the second of seven I am claims. I am the bread of life, we've already seen, and I am the light of the world. And brothers and sisters, we're not supposed to read verse 12 and just think, oh, Jesus said he's the light of the world. That's cool. You know, he said he's the light of the world. I guess I believe him because he said it. But we're supposed to read, if we really are understanding, we're supposed to read verse 12, and we're supposed to say, Amen. 
He is the light of the world. I agree. I can also tell other people he is the light of the world. Understand what he means and concur with him that he's the light of the world. Can you do that? I just want to reflect on that this morning. Are you just thinking, yeah, Jesus said it, so it must be true? Or are you personally saying, yes, he is the light of the world. And by following him, I'm not in darkness and I have the light of life. That's true. That's how we should understand and read these I am statements, all of them. So what does he mean, I am the light of the world? Well, turn with me to John chapter 11. And we'll be jumping around a bit this morning because we have a very small verse we're considering and there's a lot of places we can go to shed light upon that. John chapter 11 and verse 9. Jesus here borrows from the physical world a concept. God created light and darkness and he's borrowing from this concept to explain another reality. And so in chapter 11, verse 9, Jesus speaks about the physical son. And he says here in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now he's just basically, you could nitpick about that and say, are there really 12 hours in a day? But that's just a typical common summary of the fact that, you know, half of the day is light and half of it's dark. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So he's using this phrase, the light of this world, here in this verse, whereas in chapter 12, uh, verse 12 of chapter 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. But when he says he sees the light of this world, Jesus is actually just referring to the sun. The sun is the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So this really isn't supposed to be a complicated uh, teaching. Basically, when the sun is up in the sky and you're walking around, you can walk around freely. You can walk around without stumbling. You can walk around uh, naturally. Why? Because you see the light of the world and it's shedding light upon this earth and it gives you the ability to see what's there and not trip up. If you walk in the night, however, it's a different story. Jesus says that in the night, a person has no light in him. Now, I think what Jesus means by this when he says there's no light in him is simply that he doesn't have sight. He's not seeing. Um, There's no sight. Even if there, because there's no light, there's therefore no sight. This man doesn't have, um, he hasn't taken the light in himself so that that light is useful and operative in his life. Um, let me make that a little bit clearer. Thank you, Brad. Matthew chapter 6. <laughs> Do you remember in Matthew chapter 6 how Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body? You remember that? Jesus talks about the eye being the lamp of the body. And if your, light, if your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, then your whole body is full of darkness. And I think what Jesus is saying there and what he's saying here about he doesn't have the light in him, uh, I think it was just a a way, a natural way of thinking about uh, seeing. And 
as the commentator John Gill comments, the eye is that in the body as a candle is in the house. By the light of it, the several members of the body perform their office. So the sun or a candle gives light and it enables you to operate. It enables you to see and do what you're, and act based upon that light. And so your eyes are like that also. When you have your eyes, when your eyes are good, you're not a blind person, then you're able to operate and function. There might be the sun in the sky, but if you're blind, then you haven't taken that light into you and it doesn't become useful and operative. So I think this is what Jesus is simply saying. The sun's not in the sky, you don't see. And so there's no light in you enabling you to operate. So if we take this physical example and apply it to Jesus, then we see that Jesus is saying he is the light of the world like the sun is the light of the world. The sun enables us to see what's there. And when we take that light in through our good eyes, then we're able to operate. We're able to move around naturally and freely. And Jesus is the true light which enables men and women, you and I, to see reality, to see what's there, so that we can walk through this world without stumbling. It's it's really not that complicated of an idea. Light does three things for us when we walk. Number one, it exposes what is there. If you've got light, then you can see the objects that are before you. Secondly, that light reveals where we need to go. So if you can see what's there, then you'll see this is what I need to do or this is where I need to go. And if that light remains, it then enables you to to go and walk without stumbling. The continued presence of light fills us with light so that we can act on the basis of that light. Here's an example. I want you to imagine you're in a dark room. You don't know what's in that room, but you hear growling, okay? (laughs) So what do you think is in the room with you? Some beast, right? But then you turn the light, someone turns on the light, and you realize, oh, there's no beast in this room. It's just a sound system that's growling at me, okay? And so all your fears go away. So in the absence of light, you don't know what's there. But once the light comes on, then you see what's there. Now suppose you're in the dark room and the light goes on and there is a tiger in that room growling at you, okay? Then you not only see what's there, but you also see with the light what you need to do. So you see there's a tiger there, I need to get out of here. And there's my escape over there, right? But you see the room is so cluttered And then all of a sudden the lights go off. The light doesn't remain. So now if the light isn't remaining, you know there's a tiger in the room. You you know you need to get over there. But without the light remaining, it's very difficult to navigate your way out of that room. So Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals what is there. He reveals to us what we need to do in the light of what is there. And his continued light enables us to operate and, and do that which we need to do. Now, my example is using physical light, but I could give another example that I think captures, gets us even closer to the point here. You don't necessarily need to even use physical light to understand this concept. We talked about Fort McMurray, Fort McMurray earlier. So a fire, a great forest fire, came and has devoured most of that city, unfortunately. Now, I want you to imagine that you are in the city, and you're the kind of person who never leaves your house because you play video games about 24-7. Now, there are some people that are like that, right? And they're locked into their room, and they kind of just eat and play and eat and play. 
And so outside this fire is coming and you don't check the radio and you don't, no one's calling you and you're not looking at the news, you're not looking at the TV, you're just playing your game, you have no idea what's going on outside and then the fire comes and consumes you. That would not be good. <laughs> right, right, right. On the other hand, let's say you're playing your game and you have a friend and they call you and say, hey, you know, did you hear about the warning that there's a fire? We need to evacuate right now. And he says, no, I never heard that. Okay, I'm out of here. And so it wasn't physical light that suddenly gave you information about reality. It was just information. It was just words that came through the telephone into your ear. And all of a sudden you were aware of reality. You were aware of what was there and you were aware of what you needed to do. And on that on the basis of that light, metaphorically speaking, you got out of there and saved your life. So light is truth about reality. And when a person is in the light, then there's order, then there's, then there's knowledge, then you don't stumble about, you know what you need to do, you know how you need to do it. There's harmony. And there's life, because one saves themselves in that, in that light. In the darkness, we have unreality, we have lies, and what results from darkness is chaos. You don't know what's really there, and so you get hurt. Or maybe you know what's there, but you don't know how to deal with what's there, and you stumble about, and you fall, and you trip. You maybe know, I need to get out of here, but you don't know the best way to get out of there, and you end up perishing. So in darkness, there's chaos and disorder and pain. Jesus came to bring light into our darkness. Now that's good news, isn't it? That itself tells us of the mercy of God. Because the the Bible tells us that the world is in darkness. It's under the power of the devil, controlled by his lies. And all because of our sin and rebellion against God, that's, that's the situation we find ourselves in. And this is a beautiful message in Christianity, isn't it? That Jesus has come into the world to give you light. You need that light. You need it. You're not okay without it. You are not okay without the light of Jesus Christ and the light that he brings. But because God loves you and he sees you in darkness perishing and you don't even know what you're doing, he says, I'm bringing light to this person. I'm going to show them what's there and show them what to do so that they can be saved. So we see the mercy of God in sending in Jesus light. And what is it that Jesus tells us about that we don't know and that we need to know? You know, in this information age, you know, people can be confused and think that they know everything already, right? Or I can know everything just at the click of a button. We've got satellites flying all over the earth. I can go on Google Maps and I can basically look at any corner of the earth if I want to. Um, I've got Google at my fingertips. I've got information 24-7 on the TV. I pretty much know what what is going on. What can Jesus possibly tell me? This guy 2,000 years ago, I mean, that's the dark ages, right? And here we are in the 21st century, we're enlightened. What is it that Jesus brings? What light does he bring? What information does he bring? What truth does he bring that we, even now in the 21st century or in every generation, need to know? And the simple answer the Bible tells us is, Jesus comes to bring us the true information about God and about ourselves. That's the ultimate information. You can know everything else there is to know. And if you don't know yourself and you don't know God, then you're in darkness, according to the Bible. 
You're literally a blind man stumbling around on this earth. Even though you may know how to do the best mathematics and build things, or you may know how to navigate an encyclopedia, if you don't know God in yourself, you're a blind man in danger, going to hurt yourself. It's amazing how much someone can know and not know, according to the Bible. The truth about God and the truth about ourselves. And this is what Jesus reveals to us. We need to know the truth about God. Most people in life do not realize or know that there's this inferno of fire moving toward them, right? Not a physical fire, like Fort McMurray's fire, but the wrath of God coming against this world because of their sins, because we're all unrighteous. And Jesus warned us about that repeatedly in his teaching by telling Israel and the Samaritans and basically telling the whole world There is none righteous, no, not one. That went totally against the grain of the conventional orthodox wisdom of Jesus' day. So Jesus' day, people heard, you know, there are unrighteous people and there are righteous people. The righteous people are the ones who do their best at keeping the law. No one has to be perfect. No one has to do it all. But you have to not do these things, and you do have to do these things. And if you do those things, you'll be righteous and you'll be safe. See, there's false information as well. This is where it gets a little tricky. The devil also comes as an angel of light, the Bible tells us. And he feeds people false information. It's like an enemy telling someone in Fort McMurray, don't worry, nothing." he knows the fire is coming. He says, don't worry, everything's fine. You're totally not in the path of the fire. False information. That person says, oh great, I'm safe, because they believe that that's reality, and then they perish. He sends false messages of righteousness, false messages about God. God is not a God of wrath. Or if he is, it's just reserved for serial killers. Maybe That's it. And they tell lies about ourselves. You know, you're essentially a good person. You know? Yeah, everyone makes mistakes. How many times have you heard people think that, right? That's the paradigm they live in. That's their reality. That's their world. We all make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But no, no, we're not bad people. Most people are good. And so people are deceived. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 19. Romans 2, verse 19. Here's an interesting thing. Paul is writing about the Jewish people, the devout and religious Jewish people, Uh, of which he was one at one time. And he says this, you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So here's a group of people that see themselves as different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is in darkness and ignorance. They don't know what's going on. We do. And we're here to teach and to help and instruct and to guide. We are not blind. We know what's going on. It's a scary thing when someone thinks that they're in the light and they're really not. And I think Jesus meant that when he said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness, right? If you're actually in darkness, but you're under the delusion that you're walking in the day, 
That's a problem. Better to know you're in darkness and say, I don't, I don't know what the light is, than to think you're in the light and you're not, right? And so here's the Jewish people in Paul's day, although today in the 21st century, it's now beyond the Jewish people. Lots of people think that they're guides to those who are in darkness, teaching their version of God, their version of self, their version of righteousness, and they're deceived by the devil. Now we might think, well, the Jews were not atheists. Now if someone's an atheist, they think there is no God. Well, that's certainly misunderstanding reality. The Jews are light to those who are in darkness and that they do believe in God and they do believe in Judgment Day. But according to the Bible, no, the Jews also are blind because they're blind to the colossal danger that they're in. And Jesus said the blind will lead the blind and they'll both fall into a pit. It's not that people don't know any truths when they're blind. It's that they don't know the truth. And so they perish. So what does it mean that Jesus is the light in the darkness? Well, what it means is he is the guide to those who are blind. He is the one who brings light to the darkness. And it is the true light. He brings the true, true information about God and this world. Amen? I am the light of the world. Brothers and sisters, if, if we don't have him then we are in ultimate darkness. So let's turn back to John chapter 12. The next thing Jesus says after saying, I am the light of the world, who enables us to see reality and tells us what to do, he tells us, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. So while Jesus is the light of the world, not everyone benefits from that light. There must be a response on our part That light must be taken in. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Because this is how you take that light in. And this is how you do not abide in darkness, by following him. What does that mean? Unfortunately, the idea of following Jesus is sometimes misunderstood. I shared a quote from Thomas Akempis before to you in the past regarding following Jesus, and I'd like to share it again. It comes from the opening statement of a famous book that he wrote called The Imitation of Christ. He wrote this in the 15th century. It's a very famous book. It's considered a Christian classic, and it's widely read by Roman Catholics, and even Protestants read it and promote it. But here's what Thomas Akempis said about the meaning of following Jesus, and he's actually commenting on verse 12 of chapter 8. He quotes verse 12, He who follows me walks not in darkness, says the Lord. By these words of Christ, we are advised to imitate his life and his habits. Have you ever heard of this? Following Jesus means imitating his life and his habits, trying to follow Jesus' example. We use this phrase, following someone's example. So basically, a lot of people think that following Jesus means imitating him. Now, imitating Jesus is certainly a good thing, and the Bible exhorts us to do that. But we, we misunderstand what it means to follow Jesus here if we think it means imitating his life and his habits. The Gospel of John bears a different meaning of following him. 
If you look carefully in the Gospel of John at what following Jesus means, it simply means being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the rabbi or the teacher, and following him means being his student, coming after him and learning his teaching and adhering to his teaching, even if his teaching draws the ire and the hatred of the world. Following him means I'm going to follow his teaching and do what he tells me to do, and I'm going to do that even if the world hates me. So in chapter 1, we see people who will follow him. The original disciples of John the Baptist leave their former teacher, and they begin to follow Jesus as their rabbi. In chapter 6, we see lots of crowds who are following Jesus, saying, Rabbi, how'd you get here? And then when he begins to teach about him being the bread of life, they stop following him at that point. They don't adhere to his teaching. Turn with me to chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. And Jesus talks about following him here. John chapter 10 verse 4. When Jesus thinks of following him, he thinks of him being the shepherd and we are his sheep who follow behind. He leads the way. It's not the sheep imitating him and trying to act like the shepherd. It's the sheep following the shepherd to where the shepherd leads them. This is the way. Walk this way. And the sheep go. And he says here, when the shepherd puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So the sheep of Jesus don't follow the stranger. They know Jesus' voice, and they follow him. And look at verse 26 of chapter 10. Jesus says explicitly here, to the Jews that don't believe in him, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. So to follow Jesus here, according to his own words, is to believe in him. If you were my sheep, you'd believe what I'm telling you. I'm preaching to you. I'm sending forth my voice, my words, and you're not my sheep because you're not following. You're not believing. And so therefore you don't have eternal life. Because eternal life depends upon following Jesus. And another verse, John chapter 18, verse 37. Here are some different words, but it captures everything we've been saying. Everything we've been considering. This is such a key verse in the Gospel of John, so I turn to it often. John 18, verse 37. Pilate said to him, So you are a king... And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Insert light, right? To bring light, to bring truth. The truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The voice of truth goes forth, and his sheep listen to that truth. You're a sinner. There's no one righteous. Those Pharisees aren't righteous. Unless you're absolutely perfect, just like God in heaven is perfect, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. The only way for you to receive eternal life 
is to believe in me and in my flesh and my blood, which I will give for the life of the world. This is his teaching. All who are of the truth hear his voice. So this is what it means to follow Jesus. And once you understand what it means to follow Jesus, and when you understand what he's teaching and what his message is, it actually, brothers and sisters, becomes obvious to know who is following Jesus and who is not. Do you believe that? When you know what Jesus is teaching, and you realize following him is believing, it's easy to tell. It's interesting, Dallas Willard comments that, first of all, we should note that being a disciple or apprentice of Jesus is a quite definite and obvious kind of thing. To make, it a, to make a mystery of it is to misunderstand it. There is no good reason why people should ever be in doubt as to whether they themselves are his students or not. It's interesting. That's kind of refreshing to hear. It's not a mystery. He taught something. Do you follow him? Do you believe it? Right? That's what it boils down to. This is how we know, for example, that our Mormon community here are not Christians and disciples of Jesus. When I'm on campus, I talk to a lot of Mormons, and they claim to be Christian. And when I say, I don't believe Mormons are Christians, they mean, what do you mean we're not Christian? We believe in Jesus. Okay, you say you believe in Jesus. I hear you saying that. But you're not following him. You're not his disciples because you're not believing what he taught, right? You're not believing in the message of the righteousness of God. You're here telling me that if I just try my best, I'm going to be all right. You're telling me that I'm really a good person deep down. You're telling me that only a few people go to hell? You're telling me that it's not simply through believing in him that I'm saved? This is not the teaching of Jesus, right? So no, you can say all day you're following him, but it's obvious you're not because you're not adhering to his teaching. And I just use the Mormons as an example because they're here in our community. But there's many people also in the Christian church who come to the Christian church, and they're also claiming to be followers of Jesus. But as you get to hear what they have to say, and when you get to hear what they, what they really are believing, you can detect they're not really following Jesus either. A lot of people come to church, they think by that they're following Jesus. Or by trying to imitate him, you know, I just try to be the best person I can be, I'm following Jesus. And he's teaching, right? Because what did Jesus teach? Everybody knows. Jesus basically just taught, love God and love your neighbor, right? That's basically it. No, that's not basically all he taught. That's what Moses taught. Jesus taught nobody does that. So a lot of people don't know what Jesus taught, and so they can't follow him. Following means to believe. John chapter 12, turn there with me. Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 12, that if we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. Now here's what he says in John chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. And in the context of the Gospel of John, this is basically wrapping up his public ministry. After this, it's all just the Last Supper discourse and his crucifixion. This is the final thing Jesus essentially says in the Gospel of John publicly. John chapter 12, verse 35. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. You don't understand. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. How do you become the sons of light according to verse 36? You believe. And look with me at verse 44. 
Jesus cried out and said, and obviously there's an urgency here, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Jesus came to reveal the Father, who he really is. And how do you not remain in darkness, according to Jesus? He that imitates my life and my habits. No. He who believes. So this should settle forever the question of 1 John chapter 1. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we're liars and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Now what does it look like to not walk in the light? If we say that we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And a lot, of, a lot of people think in 1 John chapter 1 there that they say, you know, God is light simply means God is holy. If we claim to have fellowship with a holy God and don't live in holiness ourselves, then we're liars. They're missing the point. God is light means God is truth. There's no lie in God whatsoever. And if you claim to know God and have fellowship with him, and you're walking in a lie, and what is the example of the lie John gives? Claiming you have no sin. Claiming that you're not unrighteous. You're a liar. So you don't really know God. So if what comes out of your mouth and your profession of your faith is, I'm a good person just trying to do my best, I don't think we're really bad, you're a liar. And you don't know the God of light. How do you know that you walk in the light, brothers and sisters? If I were to put the question to each one of you, Do you walk in the light or do you walk in darkness? The only way you know if you do or not is, do you believe what Jesus has brought or do you not? That's it. And thirdly this morning, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus tells us he's the light of the world, which means he's the one that brings us understanding of reality about God and ourselves. If we follow him, we'll not walk in darkness, which means if we believe, if we adhere to his teaching. And he says, finally, if you believe, you'll not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And I already mentioned in the sermon that having the light just simply means seeing. It's not just external to you, it's internal. You've taken it in through your eyes and you're operative. It's operating in you. And that is, you're you're basing your decisions off of what you see. But what is the connection here with life? Well, what we see here in verse 12 in Jesus' words is that the light and life are inseparable. Can you have the light that Jesus brings and not have life? Is that possible, do you think? No. He's the light of the world. If you follow him, you'll have the light of life. And what we see here is that in bringing light to the world, Jesus brought life to the world. Is it true that he brought light to the world? Yes. Is it true that he brought life to the world? Yes. And how did he bring life to the world? By bringing light to the world. 
In John chapter 1, verse 4 in the prologue, John actually inverts these words. He says that the life is the light of men. In John 1, verse 4, he inverts it. And what this tells me is that these are inseparable. They're really talking about the same thing. The life and the light are the same. Or in other words, seeing reality is living. You think that's true? Seeing reality is living? What do you think it'll be in eternity? What will be the life of eternity? Is it just simply endlessly existing? Or is it seeing reality? And by reality, I mean seeing God and seeing God for who he is and rejoicing in who he is. That is life. Why is seeing reality life? Because of what we see in Jesus. Christianity proclaims to the world that the nature of reality, or what reality really is, who God really is, and if you understood yourself as a sinner, and you understood who God is, and what he's done for you, if you just knew the truth, that you'd be set free. So Jesus says a little bit later in chapter 8, that the truth will set you free. If you just knew reality, you'd be glad. If you just knew reality, you'd rejoice, Right? If only you knew who God was, the Father, then you'd be filled. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God has called us out of darkness into his what? Marvelous light. So he's really excited about this light. He's saying, it's not just he's called us out of unreality into reality, and the reality is kind of boring and drab, right? He says he's called us out of unreality into his marvelous, awesome light, so that we can proclaim his excellencies, amen? So that we can make known and boast about and brag and how awesome and amazing God is. In chapter 17 of John, verse 3, Jesus tells us that this is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So to know God is eternal life. The prophets spoke much about this. The prophets, when they prophesied by the Spirit of God, spoke much about how the world is in thick darkness without the knowledge of God. Israel's in darkness, the Gentiles are in darkness because they don't know him and they don't understand who God is. But the prophets also prophesied that God would give light, not only to Israel, but also to the nations as well. The nations would see God's light and come to it and rejoice in who God is. So that's the situation according to the Bible. The world's in darkness and God will bring his truth to them. This was fulfilled by Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 4 tells us that Satan blinds the minds of those who are not believers so that they don't see the glory of God in the face of God of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus shows us by his words and by his deeds the express image of the Father. You want to know what God is like? Then just listen to Jesus, look at Jesus, watch what Jesus does, and you'll see what God is like. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us not only does Satan blind people's eyes, 
But God commands the light to shine in our hearts. Just like he created the light in the beginning, let there be light, and he divided the light from the darkness. Well, God still does that in our hearts by shining forth the light of who he is in Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ. And God frees us from the devil's lies. So we see him. But it's interesting that in the Gospels, not only is there a concentration of light, but there's also a concentration of darkness. In Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus says that this is when he's being arrested. He says, now it's the power of darkness. This is your hour, Satan. This is your hour, world. This is the power of darkness. When Jesus was seized and crucified, that was Satan and the world hating the light, wasn't it? They hated Jesus and they hated the message of truth. They hated the message of righteousness. They hated the message of grace. And they wanted to snuff it out and take Jesus out and kill him. And God allowed his son to be crucified by them. That was the power of darkness. That's when it's, then the world took the sun. It was the zenith of their time. And it's not a coincidence that when Jesus was on the cross, there was darkness. How thick do you think that darkness was? They probably had to bring forth torches in the middle of the day, right? Because Jesus was crucified during the day. And they probably had to have torches to see what was going on. Physically, there was a symbol of what was going on in the Spirit. The power and the hour of darkness. So there's a concentration of all that's wrong and evil and chaotic. We will not have this man reign. We will not have this truth uh, be known. We will snuff it out. And yet light conquered darkness. Because the amazing thing is, this is just so cool, that in the very hour of darkness, that was the ultimate revelation of God, wasn't it? Isn't that amazing? The brightest light shone at that darkest time when the world was suppressing the truth and killing the sun. The flip side of that was the sun was actually laying down his life for the world because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Even those who hated and persecuted Christ and the light, Jesus was laying down his life for them. Isn't that incredible? And so the power of darkness, ironically, is actually the, pow- is actually the hour of light where God clearly and perfectly reveals to the world his inflexible righteousness in that Christ needed to die for our sins and his wondrous saving love in that Christ died for sinners. And when you see that truth, you receive eternal life. It's truly amazing. He's the light of the world. The very end of the Bible in Revelation, we see that there is no need for the sun anymore in the new Jerusalem. There will be no night. The glory of the Lord is the light of that city. And it says the glory of the Lord is the light and the glory of the Lord 
is the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? So according to Revelation, what is the glory of the Lord and the brightness of his image? But it is the Lamb of God. And so we see in a symbol there that in the future there will be no more darkness. Everyone will know the Lord. So in conclusion this morning, what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? He is the one who reveals us the truth of who God is. What does it mean to follow him? You believe in the revelation that he's brought. And what does it mean to have the light of life? It means that the truth that he brings is such that it is marvelous and you rejoice in that light because God is the one who is revealed in all of his beauty and all of his goodness and he fills you with joy. There's only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. Those who are in the darkness may not even know that they're in the darkness, but if they do not believe in Christ, in fact, they're stumbling around, they don't know what they're doing, they may think they know what they're doing, but they have no idea. They're like that person in Fort McMurray who thinks everything's fine and the inferno's coming their way. I hope that's not you. I hope you're not following a blind guide who will lead you into a pit. The only safety is in Jesus Christ. But if you believe in him, then you are in the light. That's the other people in this world. Those who are in the light, the sons of light. You know where you are. You know who you are. You know where you're going because you know who God is. And you're not stumbling around. And you have the light of life. The Bible also says that as the, as the Christian church who, is, who are the sons of light, we now at this time are the light of the world in the sense that through our preaching and proclamation, we are spreading that information. We're telling people there's an inferno coming. You're not safe. There's only safety in Jesus. You need to believe. So if you are one of those Christians, and I believe most of you are, then let's be glad and rejoice in the mercy of God that in his love he brought us light and he brought us life and he's lifted us out of the darkness and he's given us eternal life and peace with him. When we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, let's not just say, he said that, it must be true. Let's understand, when we do understand what he's saying, we should be able to say, amen. Jesus Christ has brought me the truth. And in his light, I see and I have the knowledge of God and I have peace and I have joy. Can you say amen that he is the light of the world? May we say with the psalmist, with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, we thank you for the light of the world, the sun of righteousness. And Lord, it can be easy for us as people to forget that the world is a place of darkness, 
Because the sun rises and the sun sets and people seem pretty intelligent and knowledgeable. But Lord, help us to see so clearly again this morning that if a person does not know Christ and believe in him, that person is in darkness and is in danger. So Lord, for those who are in darkness, we pray that you would draw them out of darkness. You would reveal to them your light. I pray for all of us, Lord, that, that do know you, that we would be bold witnesses and share the gospel, share the truth, even if we're hated for it. Please help us, Lord, to be a bright light in this city, a candlestick as we're supposed to be. And Lord, I pray you just encourage us afresh this morning, each and every Christian here. I pray you just encourage us that you love us, encourage us in the gospel message again, that even though we're sinners and we daily prove that, You have loved us and you have given Christ to die for us and our righteousness is not based upon our own works but it's based upon what you have done for us and we have it and we have eternal life in you and we thank you, Lord, for that. So we praise your name, Lord, and all the glory truly does belong to you and, Lord, we're excited for that future day when that will be so clear and we'll just worship you forever seeing so clearly that we don't deserve any of it and you deserve all the worship and the glory. So Lord, we praise your name, and we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.